Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. Uh, we, we have been in the middle of a series. The series is called You Asked For It. I say that for anybody, if they're new here today, if this is your very first time at Bright Church, I'm so glad that you made the time to be here on a Sunday morning. And uh, the way that we have normally done this series is that we give people the opportunity to write questions in and, and then we answer those questions. And what, what I normally do is I'll preach one message and try to incorporate as many answers to different questions within the framework of that one message. I don't read all the questions out. But what I'm going to do today is break from tradition uh, and we're going to do it a little bit differently. So in week one, I talked about uh, divorce and I talked about suicide. In week two, we talked about women in ministry, not just should they be there, but can they hold every single office of ministry all the way to senior pastor and elder. And so I talked about that last week and that was just an epically uh, significant and long message. And so uh, that was last week. And then uh, today, Today, uh, in preparation for this message, we looked at all the different questions that were being asked. And the truth is that, that you know, all the questions were different. They were just so vast and, and, and so different. I thought, you know what, we're going to do something different today. Instead of doing one message, I'm going to answer 10 questions today. And, uh, and so, you know, the way that this works is, um, you know, if I was to answer each question and allocate the time evenly, I would have about four four minutes per question, okay? The reason I say that is I'm going to ask or read out a question and it's probably, it might be something uh, that that somebody in here is extremely passionate about. I don't plan on saying everything about everything, but I think enough to be helpful and give people a good sense of direction. You with me so far? All right, well, let's jump in. And so um, before, I, before I even say this first thing, I think we should give a hand to the production team this morning who are about to, to go through so many transitions on the screen that are behind me. And so we are going to believe that God is going to give them the grace to do that very quickly as well. All right, so question number one, what is heresy? Well, let me maybe first begin with what heresy is not. Heresy is not your preference. And that would seem kind of obvious, but it's amazing to me how many people will mistake their preference for what they would consider to be doctrine. I remember a while ago, somebody came to me, uh, they were from a different church background, and they thought it was very, very wrong that I as the senior pastor would allow other people from our team, our MCs and others, to lead the church in taking communion. And it's just because that was their past, that was their previous experience, and and. I want to say that that might be what you're used to. That might be what you're comfortable with, but that is not what the Bible says. And so we've got to be really careful that we don't confuse doctrine for preference. Happens all the time, happens very easily. Um, Some of you would not even be aware of this, but in recent history even, uh, there was a time where people would say that drums were of the devil. This instrument comes from the pit of hell and, and, and there should be no drums in church. And I don't know where people get that from. I think what we're seeing there is the projection of what people like onto the church and saying that it shouldn't be that way. It might come as a surprise to you, but the Bible 
doesn't really say a lot about how we should do church. It doesn't say whether we should have coffee, but we all know that's important, right? Amen, amen, amen. It doesn't say anything about whether we should have a youth ministry, but we think that's important, yeah? Okay, it doesn't say anything about whether we should have a kids ministry. And every single parent said, amen, we need one, right? So the Bible doesn't say anything about any of those subjects, right? I'm about to freak you out right now. But this morning in the foyer, we actually played and we were listening to Kanye West. Yeah. And so as some of you are like kind of, you know, freaking out a little bit because and some of you have no idea who he is. But if you do know who he is, then you might freak out. Here's my encouragement to you. You should listen to the last message because I'm telling you right now, from everything that I've seen, that man is a born again believer in Jesus Christ. And you only need listen to his latest album. It's not even a song. It's an entire album. It's the most God honoring album that I've seen from a secular artist that has made that transition. And so anyway, um, you know, after the service, go ahead and do that. But the Bible doesn't say anything about what we should listen to in the foyer. Here's what heresy really is. Heresy is teaching that deviates from established doctrine. What's funny to me is that over the centuries, people have, I believe, taken their preferences and tried to say that they would drop doctrine and certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And if we want to know what's right and wrong, I don't think we want to look within our culture or what we're comfortable with, but we want to look at what the Scriptures say and we form doctrine out of that. We have our doctrinal statement on our website. Let me give you an example of what I think is important doctrine. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ. You cannot add anything to your own salvation. If you've given your life to Jesus, it's because of His grace that you have a relationship, because of His grace that you've been forgiven of of your sins. And the reason we have that is because Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. That's what we call the good news. And it is good news. It is the most outrageously positive and encouraging message that you could ever give to another person, that God would love them so much that He would send His only Son to go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. So that is something that we would say is very important doctrine to protect. I want to read a scripture to you. This comes out of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them in, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so I'm not even going to go into the framework of that scripture or what it's about. I just want you to see that, dis- that, that heresy is destructive because it leads people away from the truth of who God is and how He wants His church to function and to operate. So we got to be careful about that. All right, question number two. How will we know the mark of the beast? Best way to find the most accurate answer is to do a quick Google search. Um, should you do a Google search, you should also quit your job and, and sit down and watch uh, months and months of YouTube clips that will take you down uh, the rabbit warren, all sorts of things about the Illuminati, and, and, and we also hate triangles too. You know, that's a good doctrinal statement to protect. Geometric shapes, they own it now. We can't even do anything with triangles. So, so anyway, the, the, the point is, 
the point is, is that if you do a Google search, there's a lot of different ideas. One of the most entertaining ideas that I do not believe, but still amazing in its presentation, was the presentation from a lady that said that the monster energy drink was in fact uh, uh, the mark of the beast. If you sit down, just just do, do yourself a favor when you go home, sit down and watch it. It'd be the most entertaining five minutes you know that you'll have and you watch what she says uh, uh, about monster energy drink I actually need to apologize publicly I accused Matt Crane of being a person that drinks monster energy drinks because I said we all need to pray for him he told me I do no such thing I drink Red Bull because it gives me wings I said okay <laughs> so so in fact come to think of it we're still going to pray for you anyway Matt and so and, and, and so anyway, you know, when we talk about what is the mark of the beast, is it a microchip that should go in our hand? Personally, I think that that would be very handy. See what I did there? Anyway, the, there's a microchip that's in your hand. Uh, you would never forget your keys. People are going to freak out about it. I don't know about this. Um, you know, let's read it. what the Bible says about the mark of the beast. Out of Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 to 18, it says, Also it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Uh, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. So depending on your school of thought around the mark of the beast, many people are going to say that the mark of the beast, is, it's already happened and, and uh, this is history. And the reason why uh, we say it's history is because when uh, John, who wrote this letter, when he wrote it, he said that this is happening soon. I just would like to remind you that at the very end of that book, uh, the book of Revelation, it also says that Jesus is coming back soon. And people have been talking about that for the last 2,000 years. So, so there's soon and then there's soon. All I know is that every generation of grandparents has told us that the end is actually now here. And so, you know, we should expect that Jesus is coming back any minute. I don't know when Jesus is coming back and neither do you. And if you say you do, you don't because that's what the Bible says. You're not supposed to know anyway. But it's interesting because if you look at some of what history says and it says that, um, you know, people would say, well, Nero, Emperor Nero, uh, he was Caesar and he was, he was the beast, right? There's actually a fair bit of evidence that could support that. For example, if you take the name Nero Caesar in Hebrew uh, and add up the numbers that would correspond to those letters, it adds up to 666. Uh, it might be true, uh, you know, uh, you know can, the other thing as well is, is that contemporary writers of that day and era also said that Nero was a beast or the beast, you know. And so it's possible that that is true. Um, you know, if you're not sure and you freaked out and you're not convinced, let me tell you what it is going to be. If it's still to happen, then it's going to be obvious, it's going to be real obvious. You, know, you won't have to worry about what it is. You don't need to freak out about what it could be. It's going to be obvious and everyone's going to know. So you're not going to be tricked and you're not going to find out that it actually is an Apple you know, iPhone. You know, It is far more likely biblically to be a Samsung Galaxy and everybody knows that. That is good biblical doctrine right there. But you know, let, let, if you look at what it says, it says that you, know, um, you won't be able to buy or sell. Okay, so so, so the moment that you can't buy or sell anything unless you have this 
thing called the mark of the beast. That's probably going to be the greatest tip to everyone globally that this is, in fact, what the mark of the beast is. Um, what's important to me today and what's important to you is that when we, if we arrive at that point in, in, in the future and you won't be able to buy or sell, it means it's going to be incredibly inconvenient for you to live your life um, as a follower of Christ because you can't buy or sell anything. And so my point to you today is that's where you need to have, make sure that the Word of God is the final authority on the things that you say yes to in life and the things that you say no to in life. It, it may mean that, that following Jesus comes at great personal sacrifice. And I would say that's how much weight the Word of God should have in our lives. So when it comes up and you're like, well, it's inconvenient, would you go the wrong direction to make your life easier or not to be pointed out? I think we need to make sure that we're always following what the Word of God says. The other thing that it says about the mark of the beast is that people will be, or the man will be worshipped, you know, or it'll be worshipped. And I think when we say the word worship, we certainly don't mean that anybody's bowing down and worshipping it, but it has the affection of your heart. So here's my encouragement to you today. Make sure that Jesus always has the affection of your heart. Do not let anything sit in that seat on that throne that is called your heart. Make sure that you listen to God, that you love God with all of your heart. He's always the object of your affection. Don't compromise and you will be fine or martyred, something like that. Anyway, uh, question number three. How do I know that I have received salvation? So it's my personal conclusion from reading the Scriptures that uh, once a person's received salvation, I don't think you can lose it because His grace covers your sins. You're not going to do enough bad stuff to be unredeemable, if you, if you understand in that sense. But the question would be, uh, how do you know that you have it in the first place? That's a great question. And if you come to this church regularly, you should know, because not only do I say it every week, but we have it on the screens for you. And it comes out of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There are two things in that Scripture that are really important. Number one, you need to make a confession with your mouth. Number two, you need to believe this message in your heart. And I would then go ahead and say that if somebody has confessed with their mouth and believes in their heart, then we should see the evidence that you really mean it. Because somebody could say the words and not believe it and not mean it. In fact, I have a story about a friend of mine and years ago, I led him in a prayer of salvation. And on the surface, he said all the same words that I did uh, and, and you know made a confession with his mouth. But I just don't believe that he believed the message in his heart. Because from the day that we said that prayer, not one thing has changed about his life. And there should be some fruit attached to our lives. I've preached a couple messages on that. Um, in, in, in the last sort of month or so. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because if you are following Jesus, we know it, we can see it. It's clearly evident in the way that you live your life. So um, let, let me 
read a, a scripture that comes to you, to you um, out of Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Now, in this scripture, uh, John the Baptist is dealing with religious leaders. And it's funny because uh, I, I found and come across people that are religious in the sense that they, they think they or believe they have some affiliation with God and it's come via their parents or via their family or via osmosis. When you make a decision to follow Jesus, it is an intensely personal decision. You cannot be, uh, you know, be saved because you're family, uh, 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 Christian people. I've met so many Catholics that say to me something like, uh, yeah, I think I'm Catholic. And I always say, look, if you think you're something, you're not. You, you, you're just not, you know. I, I, I've had uh, friendships with people that say, I think I'm Greek Orthodox. I'm like, if you have to think that you're something, you're not. No one has ever said, I think I'm Pentecostal. No one would admit that unless you were a genuine follower of Jesus, you know. But I find that in a lot of the mainstream uh, uh, belief systems, and this is not, ex you know, across the entire, uh, uh, you know, uh, group of people, I guess. But a lot of people say, well, I think my parents were Catholic. So by, uh, you, you know, because that comes down the family line and because they were Catholic, I think that makes me one. Yes, I have a relationship with God. No, that's not how that works. Here's John the Baptist tearing into religious people that are kind of living with a similar, fra similar framework. It says, therefore, it, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, and um, it's a pretty harsh thing to call somebody a snake, right? But when he says, uh, you know, you brood of vipers, he's not just saying that you are a snake and we don't like you. He's saying uh, it's, a, it's a throwback reference to creation where he says, you know what? The reason that you're a snake is because your father is a snake. In other words, he's talking about the devil. He's saying, you're not of God. You stand there being holy people, trying to present that you are from God, but everything about you says that you're not. This is how he gets stuck into them. He says, you brute of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, if you've got a Bible, underscore this part in your Bible, highlight it. It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's worth repeating. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In fact, it's so good, we should all say it. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. We need a bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you don't know what repentance means, it is the direction that your life is going. It actually means a turn. You've turned from the way you, you were going and now you start to walk after this life with Jesus. And so he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So what's that? He's saying just because it's in your family line and history doesn't mean that you personally have a great relationship with God. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so in that, um, we understand that there needs to be something that accompanies that decision that we make. You can't hide it from everyone. In fact, listen to what the Bible says in Matthew 10, uh, 32 to 33. Jesus speaking says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But, and this is the part you want to be aware of, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
This is not meant to be a secret. You should never be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation to those who believe. So uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, then don't be shy about it. Um, You're actually meant to share that message and spread that message. And as I said already today, it's such an encouraging and positive message that God would love people so much that he and he wants to know them, that he would send his only son to the cross, to die on the cross to set us free from the power of sin. Hey, that's a message that everyone can enjoy. Um, and, and, and the concern is that we have so many people, this is my concern, is that we have so many people that think they have a relationship with God when they don't. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a message where I talked about at the end of the age that Jesus would separate the sheep from the goats. And, and when we see that scripture, you think, how difficult could it be? They Shouldn't they be able to sort themselves that out? You know, like there's one group and they need to be sorted. You say, well, sheep are fat and fluffy and goats are skinny and, they, and, and they've got horns. Don't they understand that they look different? At the time when this was written, goats and sheep actually looked really similar. And so apparently, they're not sorting themselves out and it requires Jesus to do it. My greatest worry is that people, that we, we've got some goats looking around at all the sheep saying, we're all sheep, right? We're all sheep. All of us, we're all sheep. We're all sheep together. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to come along and say, you're not. My sheep hear my voice. They know who I am and they follow me. And so he's going to do some sorting of the sheep from the goats. That is why it's so important that we are able to explain all the things that I'm talking about right now so that people can genuinely know God for themselves and who he is. 1 John 5.3 says this, In this love of God, or this is uh, love of God, that we keep His commandments. And by the way, His commandments are not wearisome and they're not meant to be a burden. So whenever we see a command in the Bible, you've got to know every time God asks you to do anything, it's there because He loves you. And if you obey it, it's going to help you. And it's not meant to feel like a burden. So, you know, um, we just got to keep staying repentant and following after God. And, and if you're worried, stay repentant. Make sure that Jesus is always on the seat of your heart, as I say, and walk after Him. And that'll be clear to everyone that you really do have a relationship with God. All right, question number four. What is the one thing, the one thing that gets in the way of being a good leader? That is an easy question to answer. The one thing that gets in the way of being a good leader is you. You are the thing. You are the reason that you are not a good leader. There there are all kinds of things under the category called you that could explain to you why you are not a good leader. But there are character competencies, uh, you know, and, and, and all kinds of reasons. So, for example, if you are a prideful or arrogant person, you are going to struggle to be a leader. I, this is what John Maxwell says. He says, leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. Here's what you have to know. Every single person has influence. That emerges as a leadership gift. And you want to make sure that you're leading people in the right direction. Okay, so everyone has the capacity to grow into being somewhat of a leader. I I think this is true that leaders are, are not born, they are made. And so we get to make choices in our life that will either be conducive to good leadership or bad leadership. And so, you know, there is the other thing as well. Uh, 
just practically, if you're leading people somewhere and you've got no vision, you need to think about that too. Because, you know, leaders are going to lead people somewhere. Make sure you've got a vision for where people should end up or where you're supposed to be going. I could say so much more about that and I won't. Here's what I'll say about Bright Church though. We believe that uh, leaders should be humble, hungry and smart. So when I say that leaders should be humble, right, we uh, listen to God, we learn from people, we celebrate team success over individual achievements. We are hungry for the presence of God and we are always interested in making things better. When I say that we're being smart, that we need to be smart as leaders, I'm not talking about IQ, I'm talking about EQ. You need to be clever and, and, and understand the impact of the words that you speak. Your words carry weight. So Give good consideration to the words that come out of your mouth. Are they helpful? Are they hurtful? Are they culturally going to put people in dissent? You know, you've got to think about that as well. If you want to know more about how to become a great leader, then you should do the Bright Church Leadership Internship. We are taking applications today still. And if you do that, we'll do the best that we can to train you how to do that well. Um, all right, I'm going to move on to question number five. How do you trust God when you see no positive from going through traumatic, life-changing circumstances? Well, this question is incredibly personal for me as it is for you, because the truth is every single one of us have gone through difficult times. And if you haven't, you need to understand that these things can happen when you least expect it. And here is what is going to happen. And if you haven't experienced this, I'm calling it early. There is going to be a gap between what you experience and what you understand. And you're not going to know why you're going through it. Everyone faces that gap. And, and here's the truth. Just being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that your life is all skittles and rainbows. There are going to be challenges that you will walk through in life. And God doesn't explain to us the reason why He does all of these things. You know, last year, I remember that, you know, Pastor Sarah, she was, you know, in the hospital. They're trying to diagnose this illness that they think she has at the exact same time. I'm going through my own experiences in hospital uh, they're trying to diagnose what could have potentially been a really serious illness with me. And let me give you a little bit of an insight as to my prayer life during that time. I said, God, I said, I don't understand what's happening. It looks like everything is, is um, difficult. I, I don't understand my current circumstances, but God, here is my confession. You are good. And I refuse to allow my present circumstances to dictate to me the kind of God that you are. My confession is, no matter what I go through, you are always there for me. I love you and I know you love me too. And I think it's so important that we keep that as the confession of our heart when we go through things that we don't understand. You know, when it comes to my kids, I often don't let them do things and they don't understand why. They're like, Dad, can I play with your iPhone? They want it every minute and every day. And I just say no. And now I, don't, I can't be bothered telling them why. But my concern is that they're getting addicted to that screen. And I don't want that to be an addiction for them in their life. And I don't want them to see and accidentally come across content that they shouldn't do it. So, yep, I tell them that they can't have it. I don't explain why, but every motivation that I have 
have is for their welfare and for their benefit. Now, I think it helps us to know that this is how God deals with us too. Listen to Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. It doesn't say where that path directly goes. It just says that you can go straight there. So sometimes what God will do, even in His grace and in His mercy, is we are led straight into our next challenge, straight into our next problem. And, and, and that's just the reality that we go through. But the thing is, is I don't trust God because my circumstances are good. I don't trust God because everything is rosy in my life. When I'm trying to make a decision about whether I should trust God, I look to the cross and I realize that this is the God that loved me at my most unlovable moment. When I was far from Him and full of sin and shame and guilt, I had all kinds of things going on in my life. In that very space, He loved me. And He said, I sent Jesus to the cross to die on that cross for your sins so you can be set free. That is the actions of a God that loves us. In fact, when we talk about the love of God, we try to sometimes separate it out from Him. I realize that we do it because it just sounds right as we form that sentence. God loves you and that is true. But if you want to get serious about what the Bible says, it doesn't just say that He loves you as if it's extrinsic, it's, it's external. It says that He is love that he, he actually is love. We only love God because He first loved us. And so we need to understand at the very core of who God is, He absolutely loves us. And so I think that we can, when we're going through circumstances, we need to understand that. The other thing that we need to do is sometimes redefine what we believe is positive. I wonder how many of you have ever been encouraged by a great testimony that you've heard. Hands up if you've ever heard a great testimony and you thought, wow, that was so encouraging, right? Um, so testimonies are encouraging, but no one wants to be the one that goes through the actual testing, you know? And I think you need to consider that. So what God does is sometimes He allows us to go through testing so that we can inspire and encourage other people. So I need to redefine what I think is positive because maybe what I'm going through is negative for me, but it's incredibly inspiring and encouraging and positive for someone else. Now, you're never going to know that if you decide to live a selfish life. If you live a selfish life and you don't help people, you, you, you know, you're not part of any social network, you just retreat back within yourself, then maybe you will never understand why you're going through that. But the reason you were going through it is because God was trying to do something in you to help other people. So I think no matter what you do, continue to confess that you love God and allow all of these experiences to benefit as many people as you can around you. I think that's incredibly important. This is what the Bible says about people that go through hard times. It says in Philippians 4, 5 to 7, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. It's just a good statement for our culture that we live in today. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. That's pretty exhaustive, right? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all 
that surpasses all will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Question number six. With baptism representing new life in Christ, what was the spiritual significance of baptism before Jesus died for our sins? What a great question. So I've often thought about this. If you're new to church and you don't even know what baptism is, it's an act of identification with Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection. The word baptism in the original language comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to fully immerse and to plunge under. And so what we do when we sit people in the baptism you know, tub or tank or body of water, however you do it, is when they sit up, that is symbolic of Jesus' death. Then we lay them down under the water. It's symbolic of His burial. And as they sit back up, it is symbolic of His resurrection. More than that, we should know that Jesus has asked every single believer in Christ to get baptized. I have seen people delay this for years because not all their family members could make it to the service, right? Here's my encouragement. Stop trying to please everyone else. I know it's a great opportunity to get your friends or your family to church. Can I exhort you to be obedient? Tell them in advance. Pray in Jesus' name that they can be there, right? But stop delaying what is good and right to make sure that it fits everyone else. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, the next time we have a baptism, I would encourage you to make sure you sign up. Tell everyone early. We'll let you know with plenty of time in advance, but make sure you do because that's something that God wants you to do. Now, if you look in the Bible and you see the word baptism, right? You'll only see it in the New Testament. You don't actually see it in the Old Testament, but John is clearly doing baptisms. So where does it come from? Well, it's actually really similar to the Jewish purification rites that, that um, the Jewish people would have. And they have a purification rite that's called uh, where they would go into a mikvah. And a mikvah is like a, a body of water and it could be naturally occurring. But if you look at them today, Jewish people still do this and they have them in their homes. And it's kind of like, I guess, it looks like a spa to me. And, and, and so what happens is, is they go to the, um, the, 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 the mikvah and they say a prayer prayer uh, before they enter and they say a prayer after they leave. And the rules are when you do this, you got to do it naked. So aren't you glad that we do baptisms and not mikvahs publicly? Isn't that good for everybody? You're all happy about that. In fact, we're so uh, serious about not seeing nudity that we give everyone a black t-shirt. Yes, that's why we do it. So it's actually a really great idea. And, and, and so, you know, uh, that is what people would do. And, and um, not to be you know, crass in any way, I'm just literally to explain it to you. At the end of a, of a woman's menstruation cycle, she would go in uh, and, 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 and become clean again. And that was part of the purification rites. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you touched a dead body, uh, then you would become by implication unclean because you touched it. So you would go and do this purification rite. So, so we don't see it in the Old Testament, but somewhere in that what we call the four. 400 silent years uh, before Christ came. Uh, at some point, baptisms were happening and we absolutely know that John the Baptist was doing it. In fact, this is, is what the Scriptures say. It says, John's baptism was one of repentance. Acts 19 verse 4 says this, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And so um, I don't know how many other people were doing it, but we know that John did it. And now what's happened since Jesus died on the cross, we're saying this is what baptism is about today. Hopefully that helps you. All right, question number seven. What do you do 
when you have gifts that are used, but in using them, you cannot support yourself and the people around you don't support you. So I'm going to tell you how I read this question because I want to be helpful. And if I've misunderstood it, whoever read that question, sorry. (laughs) So you have gifts. The Bible says we have spiritual gifts. When you use them, you cannot support yourself. I took that to mean financially. So to use those gifts, you can't support yourself financially when you use them. And then it says, and the people around you don't support you. And I assume naturally that that doesn't mean necessarily financially. Um, It might mean financial. It might mean that they just don't think that you should be doing it. That's how I read the question. Um, So spiritual gifts are something that is what the Bible says, a manifestation of of the presence of God. If you're new to church, there are also ministry gifts. There are spiritual gifts. Here's what we say when we talk about people's calling. I think people's calling is the intersection of their gift and their passion. If you have a gift with no passion, you're not going to pursue it. If you have a passion with no gift, please don't pursue it. And so it's important to have an alignment of both of those things. Let me read to you a list of some of the spiritual gifts that the Bible talks about. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good. That line, verse number 7, is very important. There's a reason why you've been given a gift, and it's for the common good. Verse 8. It says, For to one is given through the Spirit um, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another uh, faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, and uh, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as He wills. So there are lots of different spiritual gifts that God wants to give. Now, if there is a problem with you pursuing that gift as, as a ministry call on your life, if there is a problem there, you need to consider that you could be wrong about it. Don't get prideful. Just consider that you could have been wrong. Maybe you thought that that was something that you were supposed to do, but you were actually wrong about it. And that's actually okay to be wrong about it. It's okay sometimes to, to try and to figure out that I was wrong. It's, I think it's foolishness to try and, and realize that it's not your gift, but because you've already said it, now you've got to pursue it because you've you've gone public and to fail would be epically you know, public for you in that sense. So you've got to keep pursuing it. To me, uh, that just doesn't make sense. You might at, at, at a minimum just be wrong about how to actually use the expression of that gift. I think firstly, you've got to have the right people around you. Because this question said, what if people don't support you? Well, maybe the reason they don't support you is because they don't believe what you believe about the ministry you're trying to pursue or the gift that you think that you have. So if you're surrounded by incredibly negative people that are always shutting down everything in your life, find a better crowd. 
But if you've got the right people around you, they're biblically astute, they, they are spiritually aware, and they say, we don't think that this is the gift that you've got, you should pay attention to it. They might be just there trying to help you. It's always funny to me when I watch Australian Idol. And you have these people come out, and they think that they are it in a bit. And they start to sing... All right, and then they have to find out from the judges publicly that they are terrible at singing. And I often think to myself, where are these people's friends? Where are their friends? Why didn't someone say to them, you can't sing, you shouldn't sing. MJ, you're not supposed to get up and sing in front of a crowd, you know? We say that stuff because we care about people. We want to make sure that they don't make a mistake publicly in front of other people. Then what I realized is that sometimes people get, you know, their friends say to them, hey, you don't have this gift, but they don't listen. And so they get up. So you've got to listen, right? And one of the reasons why people don't listen is because they say, and here is the trump card, but I have a word from God about this. The moment anybody says that, They basically shut down all kinds of feedback. Because every time I try to give somebody some kind of wisdom or advice about where they're going with their life and they say, but God told me, I'm like, well, that is the best way to end this conversation. Because if you tell me that God told you, what do you want me to say? I'm not going to tell you to go against God. I'm no fool. If God told you to do it, you better do it. But I hope you heard from God Because if you didn't, you're going to end up in strife. Now, the Bible says and and gives us all kinds of stewardship principles and practices that we need to employ in our lives. So if somebody was pursuing a ministry call and burning through cash and not being able to support their family, I would question the validity of that call of God that's on their life. I would say it doesn't seem like God is supporting you in this either, you know. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I am saying that if you pursue it and you risk it for the biscuit, you better be aware that there are consequences on the other side of you making this mistake. If you can live with those consequences, then by all means, go right ahead. Just hope you heard from God. Next question, number eight. Should the Bible be taken literally? If the Bible is written by men and men are flawed, is there the possibility that the Bible is flawed? 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So here's where I'm going to begin answering this question. I'm going to begin by saying that what we have here is Scripture. And the and, and all the methods that they use to bring us this collection of 66, books is as it should be. That's my starting point for answering this question. The question is, is what's in here, is this content flawed? And that is a a, a really great question. Can we take it literally? I believe that we can take the Bible literally if we read it within the framework and context for how it was written. If you read poetry, right, and they're using metaphors, 
you got to understand it the way that it was written. If you start to read books like Ezekiel out of the Old Testament and there are visions describing what he saw, I think you need to understand the genre that you're reading. So if it's history, you read it as history. If it's prophetic literature, you got to read it as prophetic literature. Within the framework of that, I would say you can read the Bible literally. And I think it says what it says and we can understand it that way. So the word that we would say when it comes to the Bible is we would say it is inerrant, which literally means that it is without error. But what I have have experienced over time when people genuinely with a heart that just wants to know if they can lean on what this word says is they say, hang on, wait a minute. If we look at the scriptures, we read the gospels, it says that there was a crowd of 4,000 people. How do we know that there was 4,000 people? Well, let me explain to you a little bit about how we, what we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant. If I gave you a maths equation and I said to you today that five plus six is 10, you would say that I am Wrong. I'm clearly wrong because it doesn't make sense and it's inaccurate. So, so you know, you would disagree with me and you'd be right to do so. But if you asked me what my age was and I told you I was a young pastor, still young, I would be right because I am young and fresh and all of that. I'm really just preaching to my own staff team who this week have tried to say that I am now middle-aged and I reject that in Jesus' name. That is bad doctrine. And so we would not confess that at all. But let me tell you this, right? If you asked me what my age was and I told you I was 38, right? Because I'm born in 1981. Would that be correct? Yeah, but only to a point, right? Because if I say I was 38, for a brief moment, I was exactly 38. But since that time, minutes and seconds and months have passed, right? And so because of that, um, you know, I'm not giving you the exact precise number, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an answer that leads you to enough understanding of what the truth is. I'm saying that I'm 38 years old because that's how old I am. When we see in the Bible, it says there was a crowd of 4,000 and people say, what if there was 4,020 people? What about that? I'm saying that the answer is designed to lead us to the conclusion that there was a large crowd of about 4,000 people. And that doesn't affect the way that I look at the doctrine of salvation. It's just designed to lead us to something that's true there was a big crowd I mean if you want to get honest about it don't get offended back in the day they didn't even count the women and children we have no idea how big the crowd was they just counted the men we are meant to understand that a loud a large crowd had formed and that is the framework with which I, I, I read the scriptures in Paul's letters he gets very specific about specific things and then we look at it like that too so that's how I look at it I'm going to give you four things that I think are really important important when it comes to the inerrancy of Scripture. Number one, I think that God's pretty smart. So I reckon that if this is not a book of science and it's not a book of maths, but it is His revelation of who He is to people, then even though people are writing it, He is still the author that speaks to them and they write out the Scriptures as they're supposed to be. I think that the Bible is God's revealing Himself to us. And if He wants to reveal Himself, He's going to do it 
and He's not going to make a mistake about how it was supposed to happen. So I think the Holy Spirit is smart enough to oversee the piecing together of the Scriptures. Number two, you got to understand through time and history with what was written, the Hebrews, uh, they went to great lengths when copying the Scriptures from one manuscript to another. When they would do it, they would do nothing from memory. They would have one person reading one character at a time. Gosh, talk about arduous. And, and they write one character, nothing from memory. And when they get to the end of that document, let's say there's 2,000 characters. They count them all. And if they're out by one, they wouldn't even look for the spot where to correct it because there should be no corrections in Scriptures. They just got rid of it. They started again because they said there should not be any corrections on paper. We don't want people to be confused. Confused, you got to understand how serious they were about copying the scriptures. Number three, I think that when we talk about Jesus, what he did, what the, the acts of the apostles, when we read all of those things, the miracles and everything that we see in the Bible. When we read that, we need to understand that this was written at a time where all the people that it was written about were alive. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you could just ask people, hey, did you see him? And people could say, yeah, we saw him. There were people alive at the time when the scriptures were written. I think it could be easily verified whether this was uh, any of the scriptures were false or not. Number four, uh, the scriptures, they include mistakes. And not mistakes in what is written, but the mistakes that people made. I think that what we have here is a raw account of people's humanity and their continual failure that simply points to a God that continues to redeem His people. If you were writing it and making it up, you probably wouldn't make up a whole bunch of lies about yourself to, to, to sell a copy of, of your latest psalm. But... This was written with raw honesty because that's the life that they lived. And so people were honest about the mistakes that they made. I think it's because the Spirit of God pushed people to put down on paper what they'd done and how God has responded to it. And that kind of leads me to this last question. I'm going to skip question nine because we don't have time. But question number 10, this is a really important one. Do you think at the end of days in Revelation that people in hell will get a second chance before being cast into the lake of fire? So Jesus speaks about hell often. It's called in Hebrew, it's Gehenna or Gehenna of fire. And Jesus speaks about hell as if it is a real place. When we read the Scriptures, there's this time that Jesus is talking about it. He's, he's actually sharing a parable, but the parable is designed to illustrate spiritual truths that we need to understand. And there's a, a, a parable about a poor steward. And He says, Cast that steward out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You read that? Okay. So when I read that, it makes me realize that whoever goes to this place, they are conscious of the fact that they are there. It's not like they go and disappear into oblivion. They know that they're there. The Bible says in Matthew 25, 41 and 46, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell's not prepared for people. It's not made for people. It's actually prepared for the devil and his angels when they rebelled against God in heaven. That's why he prepared it. 
It goes on to say in verse 46, and these people being the ones that don't believe, they will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal. That means forever. But the righteous, and when we say righteous, just to let you know, we're not self-righteous people. We are only righteous by faith in Christ. The righteous will go into eternal life. So there's two eternal dwelling places. One is with God and that is eternal life. And one is in hell and that's eternal darkness and punishment and torture. It says in Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. That's talking about the mark of the beast, but enough in that scripture to say that it's eternal. It's eternal torment. And I read that and I think it's so important that I answer this question well because to be honest, we, we don't make hell the focus of church because we have a, a positive message that is that yes, that is a real place, but nobody has to go there. Nobody has to go there. That's not God's intention for people to end up in that place. We just read it. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why it existed. I I read this and I think, you know, if you were faced with eternal torment and you had a way out, you'd take it. The reason that they're punished forever is because once they go there, there's no second chance. They cannot get back. And someone sitting here, maybe even today, maybe just listening to this message, and when they say, what kind of God would send people to hell How could He be a loving God if He was willing to send people there? You've got to understand something. God doesn't send people to hell. Not the God that I serve. Not the God that I worship. My kids, when they have got in trouble when they were young, I would send them to their room. Before they got there, I gave them all the rules and things that they need to obey. Hey, this is what you need to do. If you misbehave, this is the place that you're going to end up. So they get sent to their room and I'd go in and I'd see them and see if they were mature enough to understand how they got there. And so I would say, hey, who put you in this room? And when they were little, they would say, "Uh, you put me in here. I say, no, I didn't. I said, you put you here. You're the one that put yourself in this room when you moved outside of what I told you you could do. The older they got, I said, who put you here? They said, I put me here. That's exactly what happens here when we talk about heaven and hell stuff. God doesn't send people there because He doesn't love them. In fact, can I tell you this today? God has gone to great lengths, removed every single obstacle apart from controlling people's minds He has removed every single obstacle to make the path clear so that people could choose to go to heaven by saying, we want forgiveness of our sin. We want to receive forgiveness. We want to worship you, God, you know? And, and, And the people that choose that, they choose eternal life. The people that say, no, I want nothing to do with it. They choose eternal darkness. They choose eternal torture. And it's horrible. And, and, and if sometimes we, we come to church and, and, and if you hear something like this and it sounds like what's happening right now is I'm just giving you all kinds of reasons to be uh, afraid or maybe we're just trying to scare people. There's part of me that's not trying to, I don't, I don't want to scare anyone, but I would love to scare everyone. 
I want people to know the practical realities of what happens if you don't have your sins forgiven. See, there can be judgment happen that happens here on earth where you are found sin-free because you have salvation in Jesus Christ. Or you can just delay that until after you die, but then you will be held accountable for every wrong thing that you've ever done. And the moment that that happens, you send yourself straight to hell. Jesus removed every obstacle by dying on the cross for our sins. He's done everything. And then He says so many times, choose me, choose life, obey me, because I want you to live in eternity with me. I want you to experience everlasting life. And so before Jesus ascended, He gave this command to His disciples and He said to them, the most important thing that you guys can do now is to make sure that every single person knows this message. You need to share this message with everyone. We call it the Great Commission. It wasn't the great suggestion. It's not a nice idea. What Jesus wasn't saying is, hey, listen, if you've got spare time between the busyness of your school run and your job and you could squeeze it into your schedule, could you please just let people know? He said this thing called the Great Commission is the number one thing that you do. I don't care what you do outside of that. But the one thing that you do as a Christian is you tell everyone that you can that this is real, that God loves them. You don't have to be ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of salvation to those who believe this message. And so He says, I want every single person working on this. Please don't become so familiar with the request to share the Gospel that it goes in one ear and out the next. You're like, that's just something that they say at church. Oh gosh, for honestly, for the love of God and who He is, please don't say the corporate body called the church. They will do it. You are the church. And every single person individually, you are the church and you have been tasked with the enormous responsibility to let this life-giving, amazingly, outrageously encouraging message into the hearts and minds of those people so that they've got an opportunity to live eternally with God forever. A couple months ago, we gave everybody a little card that said on the card there was a place where you could write three names of people that you were believing for, for people to be saved. Every single person, if they're a follower of Jesus, should be able to write down the names of people that they're believing for. If you had nobody's name, work harder. I really mean that. If you can't think of one person in your life that needs to be in here today hearing this message, you need to rethink what you're doing with your time. You need to reconsider how you're spending your life. You should have someone that you can pray for, someone that you can intercede for, someone that you're confessing daily. God, let them know about who you are so that when I present this Gospel message that they'll listen to it and they'll be transformed and changed forever. So here's how I wanna end this. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.